Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to, we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. All right, all right, all right. What's up, Las Vegas? Happy Thursday, one and all. I'm Crystal Heath. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL, 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio, from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas, 9.30, 11.15 Sunday mornings. You can join us 6 p.m. Sunday evenings, 7 p.m. on Wednesdays. You just missed out last night, but it'll be back again next week. It is the 19th of September. We have just a week just over a week, I guess, until it becomes October, and it then becomes acceptable for those of you who keep buying pumpkin spice everything to start drinking or eating or whatever it is that you're going to do with your pumpkin spice stuff. You shouldn't you shouldn't be doing that yet. It's still it's still in the 90s in Las Vegas. We don't need to be drinking pumpkin spice stuff. When it gets to be October, okay, because some people will be turning on Christmas music. That means it will be okay for you to uh, be drinking your pumpkin things. I actually was in Walmart the other day. And uh, went to check out the clearance section. There was nothing, nothing there. You know, you see people, they post this stuff online and they're like, look at these awesome clearance finds I found at my Walmart. And then you go to your Walmart and it's like $5,000 for this fan. And you're, you're going, that's not clearance. That's not, that's not how this works. Anyway, I was at Walmart. The clearance section had actually moved from the what's the what's the outdoor area like the garden center you know the the part that's under sort of the greenhouse thing it had moved from there to inside on the shelves because outside there were guys wheeling in pallets of christmas decorations and christmas supplies now look I understand having the christmas decorations out before thanksgiving and I don't have a problem with that because the thing is even for those of you that think that Christmas shouldn't be discussed until Black Friday, okay, I get that. But if you're even going to set up for Christmas on Black Friday, you have to be able to purchase the Christmas stuff prior to Black Friday or on Black Friday. And for that to happen, the stores have to have it in the store prior to Black Friday, right? So I get that. But bringing in the Christmas stuff, I mean, it's not even the last week of September yet. And we already have the Christmas stuff. I Again, I don't mind it in November, but it's not even October. Like, the Halloween decorations, and I don't celebrate Halloween, but the Halloween decorations haven't even, haven't even had their time. Not that I think we should give them a time. I think let's get rid of them all together and I'd be okay with that. But, like, what? Christmas music? Sure. Christmas decorations. And, like, you don't even... You don't even need to be making money selling Christmas stuff just yet. Unless you're going to have it as a great deal. Which you're probably not. But September, almost, almost over. September, uh, I believe in Latin, means seven or seventh. Something of that nature. Because it was originally the seventh month on the Roman calendar. Uh, January and February were added later. And then it became the ninth month. But the name seventh or September uh, stuck with it. Fun fact for you. And then we'll get into like our actual program for today. Uh, 
when the British changed from the Julian calendar or the Roman calendar to the Gregorian calendar in 1752, they needed to change some days so that their seasons aligned with their months. So what they did was they took 11 days from the month of September out of September on the on their calendar, right? And they went from September 3rd to September 14th. So if you look at it historically, it's really fascinating because it's it's as if the days between September 3rd and 13th during the year 1752 never happened in Great Britain. Or I guess at that time would it still be England. I don't know. My my British history is not that uh God save the queen, that's about all I know. Anyway, so they're they're like missing 11 days of their history because of how they changed the calendar. So, there there you have it. Okay, we need to talk about actual issues. Today we're going to talk about um, energy sources and different things. But before we get to that, uh, Hong Kong Christians fear that their religious freedom will be gone forever. I've talked about this previously on the program. We discussed this in length. Uh, I did almost an entire hour podcast about this. You can go find that on SoundCloud or iTunes. Just search for The Frittle Show. Um... I forget what the title of it is, but I'm pretty sure it has Hong Kong in the title, and you can find it. And I talked all about what's happening in Hong Kong, uh, why Hong Kongers, and that's what they call themselves, I'm not, it's Hong Kongers, why Hong Kongers don't want to be part of China, what they're losing if they become part of China, the differences in the government systems. I went into it in detail, so not going to do it again. But uh, this article was posted on Faithwire and on Fox News, a couple other places uh, earlier this week, and I wanted to just touch on this again because it's so easy for us to forget about Hong Kong or to just see what the news media is telling us or to just see protesters in Hong Kong and to not understand the reality of what these people are facing. I mean, it is just when China takes control of Hong Kong, because unfortunately I feel that that is the direction that we are going, when China takes control of Hong Kong, it's it's going to be uh, just a, an incredibly sad time for those living in that country because the level of freedom, the level of religious freedom, of freedom of the press, of freedom of assembly, of uh, every freedom that you and I take for granted, those that have grown up in Hong Kong for the last, I, I think, about 100 years or so, they've, they've experienced the same, a very similar uh, sense of freedom, a, a, a similar sense of, of Western values almost, if you will. Not necessarily Judeo-Christian values, but uh, but a Western. They're more Western than many of their neighbors. But then when China, when China takes over, it will be a complete shift of culture, a complete shift of governing, and just total oppression. Quite frankly, and uh, Fox News had this uh, had this article. Caleb Park good friend of mine wrote about this. He said, despite the withdrawal of a controversial extradition bill and leader Carrie Lam's efforts to ease tensions in the administration in the administrative region, Hong Kong Christians fear their freedom of religion could be gone forever. Christians and pro-democracy supporters are worried that the Chinese government could make another attempt to ramrod legislation in Hong Kong that would specifically target the faith community and strip them of basic human rights. Before the bill was withdrawn, it triggered three months of unrest, you probably saw this on the news, uh, and would have allowed for people to be sent from Hong Kong to mainland China for trial. 
protesters felt the withdrawal of the bill did not go far enough. They demanded laws that would include universal suffrage and requested an independent inquiry into their complaints of excessive force by police. Lamb, who announced Tuesday of this week that she's starting dialogue sessions with the community next week, said her first priority is ending the unrest and violence as pro-Beijing protesters have repeatedly clashed with pro-democracy protesters and nearly 1,500 people have been arrested since the protests intensified in June. Hong Kong society, she said, has really accumulated a lot of deep-rooted economic, social, and even political issues. I hope these different forms of dialogue can provide a platform for us to discuss. But I have to stress here, a dialogue platform doesn't mean we don't have to take resolute enforcement actions. Suppressing the violence in front of us is still the priority. But Gina Go, the International Christian Concerned Southeast Regional, uh, Southeast Asia Regional Manor, said it's res- ridiculous... Okay. I cannot speak. She is the International Christian Concern Southeast Asia's regional manager. Said it's ridiculous to expect Hong Kong will be fair to the people after eroding the trust between the leadership and its citizens. She said eight lives have perished for this cause and the demonstrators want to continue to pursue justice and democracy so their fellows did not die in vain. The Hong Kong Catholic Diocese has made several demands, including that the former British colony be granted greater legislative separation from communist uh, China. Cardinal Joseph Zen, Bishop Emeritus of Hong Kong, uh, said Carrie Lam should at least agree to two demands, retract the bill and set up an independent investigation committee. That way, hopefully, people can accept a period of truce. Otherwise, it is unimaginable what great disaster will be inflicted on us before October 1, which is the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. Uh... Christians make up only 10% of the population of Hong Kong, but have played a vital role uh, in the protests. They've helped to quell violence. They've given a safe haven for protesters um, as the government continues to crack down on these organized uh, riots. You may have seen in the early weeks of the protests, they were singing our national anthem uh, alongside the hymn, Sing Hallelujah uh, to the Lord. These were their rallying cries and their rallying songs. Um, but, but Christians in Hong Kong have been very friendly to the protesters because they understand that the loss of freedom in their country will be especially targeted towards religious freedom. If you look at what's happening in China right now, the persecution of Christians, uh, the state church, the persecution of Muslims, the persecution of anyone... Uh, I was talking to my my great aunt. She and her her husband were missionaries in Hong Kong. Her husband actually died in Hong Kong. Um, but uh, anyway, they were missionaries in Hong Kong. They were missionaries there during a variety of, of political uprisings and different things. And when I was home a few weeks ago, I was able to sit down. We had a, a family get-together for lunch. And I've seen her not very often growing up because they were you know missionaries in Hong Kong and uh, it's my great aunt's family so it's you know you just don't interact with them as much but always one of my favorite relatives like this lady Aunt Gloria incredible the stories that she can tell um, but her children fluent in in Cantonese fluent in Chinese many of them uh, they've gone back as missionaries to this country and I was talking to her about the situation and you know, she basically said, we, we as Americans cannot begin to grasp what will happen to Christians in Hong Kong uh, when China takes over. And I was like, is there any chance that China doesn't take over? And she said, no, China is going to take over. What's going to happen to Christians will be catastrophic. 
uh, in this country. It won't be something that will be talked about. It won't be something that will be reported widely. She said we won't even know uh, most of what happens there, most likely. Um, but she said that the church there is strong, that the gospel will continue to go forward, but that it's going to be an incredibly dangerous, incredibly heartbreaking time uh, for Christians in Hong Kong the further we get into this this uh, situation where China just en- engulfs Hong Kong back into its, its communist country. And, you know, she and her family have almost completely removed from the country. Um, she said, as this is going down, it will not be safe for Westerners, for missionaries, and... Um, She's she's writing a book actually about her life and their story, and I cannot wait until that is finished to share that with you all because it will be an incredible, incredible thing. But her husband smuggled Bibles into China, like all kinds of just absolutely cool stuff. Uh, spent so many years. Anyway, I don't have time to time to keep going on this, but pray for your brothers and sisters in Hong Kong. I've I've been to Hong Kong. Um, I've been to Taiwan and Hong Kong, spent a little over a week in Hong Kong. People there are incredibly, incredibly gracious. It's a very, it's a cool city. Like, it is a cool city. Um, I've never seen anything like it outside of Hong Kong. Uh, Taipei, a little bit, but Hong Kong, just a remarkable, remarkable place. And it is heartbreaking to think about what is coming uh, to their city as China just <sighs> swallows them up. So, uh, again, I, I don't have time to get into all of what they will be facing and what's happening in China and why this is a big deal. I did a whole podcast about it. Go search for The Frittle Show on SoundCloud or iTunes and you can you can read all about it there. Or not read all about it. <laughs> you can't read about it on SoundCloud or iTunes, but you can listen all about it uh, if that's something that's of interest to you and do do some research of your own research the political conflict between Hong Kong and China and uh, just just get to know find talk to missionaries that are in Hong Kong get their perspective on it it's it's really really a fascinating thing uh, that we as Americans don't often think about because it just quite frankly doesn't affect our daily lives but for the people living in Hong Kong and for missionaries in Hong Kong and in China it's it's very very real Okay, um, let's see. We're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to shift gears completely, talk about something that I am by no means an expert in. You're like, well, how could you possibly talk about it? Well, because, you know, I'm just a regular person, and so we're going to have a regular person's conversation about regular person things and try to break down something that's been a, a controversial topic for quite a while now and see if we can sort of wrap our heads around this thing. So don't go away. You're listening to KVXL 11.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. All right, we're back. It's the Fertile Show on KVXL, 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Okay, we are going to jump into something right now that I am a little hesitant to talk about because I don't feel as educated on this as I would like to be, but we're going to give it a try because we're just going to be normal people having a normal one-way conversation because that's completely normal uh, on the radio. In 1957... On this day, September 19, 1957, Nevada became the site of the first ever underground nuclear explosion. 
The U.S. detonated a 1.7 kiloton nuclear weapon in an underground tunnel at the Nevada test site, a 1,375-square-mile research center located 65 miles north of Las Vegas. The test, known as Rainier, was the first fully contained underground detonation and produced no radioactive fallout. A modified W-25 warhead weighing 218 pounds and measuring 25.7 inches in diameter and 17.4 inches in length was used for the test. Rainier was part of a series of 29 nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons safety tests known as Operation Plum Bob that were conducted at the NTS between May 28, 1957 and October 7, 1957. Operation Plum Bob took place at a time when the U.S. was engaged in a Cold War and the nuclear arms race with the Soviet Union. In 1963, the U.S. signed a limited test ban treaty which banned nuclear weapons testing in the atmosphere, underwater, and outer space. A total of 928 tests took place at the Nevada test site between 1951 and 1992 when the U.S. conducted its last underground nuclear test. In 1996, the U.S. signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty which prohibits nuclear detonations in all environments. So I was reading that today on History.com. Nevada, our home state, the site of the first ever underground nuclear explosion. There was no fallout, which is remarkable in and of itself. Uh, and it was the site of 928 tests between the 1950s and 1990s. That is an incredible amount of nuclear tests that happened here just a few miles outside of our very own city. And it got me thinking about nuclear uh, energy and nuclear power uh, specifically. You know, as we've seen debates happening with uh, the Democratic candidates specifically, since we're, I doubt we'll have any Republican debates leading up to the primaries, but as we've seen the debates happening, we've seen this conversation coming about of, hey, what about the environment? What about energy? How are we going to save the planet from sure destruction? Now, aside from getting into the, you know, cold and hot and varying levels of cold and hot are a and have been a natural part of our world for uh, thousands upon thousands of years. Today I want to talk about the actual types, uh, different types of energy that are most common, that we hear most debated, and uh, maybe, maybe just look at some things that we haven't thought about as much or that we aren't told as much when it comes to this issue of power. So first off with nuclear energy, and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm I am looking at this, uh, some of these will be largely one-sided, and that is because I feel like you hear the other side all the time, okay? This is, this is shoved down your throat <laughs> on a regular basis. So we're just going to talk about, uh, for some of these we'll, we'll focus more on one side, for others we'll, we'll look at both, just depending on what I, what I think people are more familiar with, okay? So we're going to look at nuclear power first. Now for me, I grew up in central Pennsylvania. Central Pennsylvania is the home of Three Mile Island. You've probably only ever seen Three Mile Island in one of the X-Men movies. It's not Wolverine, um, but it's one of the ones with uh, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, and they're, him and his, I think it's his brother. I don't know, I think I've seen this movie one time. But they're like fighting, and they're running around Three Mile Island. And I think maybe does Three Mile Island blow up in that movie? I don't remember. But um, nuclear energy was a really, really big thing where I come from because we had Three Mile Island. And if something happens to Three Mile Island, we're all going to die. Like, this was just <laughs> growing up. Like, you had drills, this is what we do if something happens at Three Mile Island. It's just, it was part of my life. But I realized when I was thinking about this that 
most people probably don't even really think that much about nuclear power, but nuclear power is uh, is generated when atoms atoms are split to release the energy at their core or at their nucleus. So the atom is split, the uh, the energy in the core is released. It's called uh, nuclear fission. It generates heat. That heat is then directed to a cooling agent, which is generally going to be water. That's why if you ever visit Three Mile Island, the island is surrounded by you guessed it, water. Uh, the resulting steam from the energy and the heat produced hitting the water, uh, that steam spins the turbine, the turbine's connected to a generator, it produces electricity. Very similar uh, to like the hydropower that you've probably seen at the Hoover Dam, right? But except uh, that's solely coming by hydro, that's coming by water, this is coming by the steam produced by the atoms that are splitting, and then that steam is is uh, is spinning the turbine that's connected to the generator. So right now across the world we have 450, roughly 450 nuclear reactors that are providing roughly 11% of the total electricity used worldwide. Alright, so 11%, so we'll just say 10% to make it easy. 10% of the world's power produced by nuclear energy. The United States produces more nuclear energy than any other country in the world, uh, than France, than China, Russia, and South Korea. The most common fuel for nuclear power is uranium. So where do we get the atoms? What are we splitting? Uranium, not vibranium. Don't think Wakanda. No, uranium. Uranium is a metal that is found abundantly all across the world. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard it talked about enriched uranium, mined uranium. Uh, there's a lot of talk about uranium when you're talking about Iran and Iraq and, and so on. And a nuclear reactor... Uh, oh, we already talked about nuclear fission. We don't need to talk about that again. Um, the, there is a byproduct of nuclear reactions you've also probably heard of, plutonium. Plutonium can also be used as nuclear uh, fuel. But in the U.S., most of our nuclear reactors are either boiling water reactors, so the one where the, the atoms are released, the heat is, is put to water, and then you have steam, and then the steam powers the turbines, which power the generators, and, and so on. So most U.S. reactors are built that way. Some, however, are gas-cooled reactors, so they use the carbon dioxide as a cooling agent. Those are mostly used in the U.K. Uh, and then you have fast neutron reactors, which are cooled by liquid sodium. So why am I telling you all this? So that you can understand what it is, so that you understand what it does. Okay, so in the 1930s, this guy named Enrico Fermi first showed that neutrons could, be sp could split atoms. Then in 1942, he achieved the first nuclear chain reaction. Uh, then, of course, we had the first electricity produced from atomic energy. Then we had the first nuclear power plant in the Soviet Union. Then we had the, the first uh, commercial nuclear power plant in the U.S. was built in Shippingport, Pennsylvania in 1957. Nuclear power, though the source, the uranium, is in vast abundance, it isn't considered a renewable energy because it is dependent on that resource. And it is mined, and therefore it is finite. But nuclear reactors do not emit any of the greenhouse gases that science tells us contribute to global warming. Interesting. I'll say that again. Nuclear reactors do not emit any of the greenhouse gases that contribute to global warming. What, what science tells us is global warming. Now, the, like I said, there are risks with nuclear power, right? Um, 
Nuclear accidents have happened several times in our past. The Fukushima Daiichi in 2011. The Chernobyl in 1986. The, the one you're most familiar with is probably the one that happened in Japan in 2011. In 1979, there was a partial meltdown at Three Mile Island. So, how, uh, how do we get rid of the, the nuclear waste? The spent fuel that's dangerously radioactive for quite a while after it's used. So there, there, there is the danger side of it. But when it comes to the environment, which is what most candidates focus on when they talk about uh, energy and energy issues and how it affects the, the climate or what they suppose as climate change, nuclear power does not emit those greenhouse gases. But when was the last time that you heard a candidate talking about nuclear power. It's rarely discussed. I think because we don't understand it, it seems scary. But the fact of the matter is that everything that creates power is scary. If you want to read some horror stories, read about some things that can happen to people that install solar panels. Read about the dangers of coal mines. I mean, th there is danger related to every source of energy. And I'm not knocking coal, by the way. I'm going to tell you how awesome it is in just a few minutes. But when you think of the words clean energy, most people don't think of, sol of, uh, of, of nuclear power. They think about solar panels, they think about wind turbines. We don't think about nuclear power. But nuclear power is a zero-emission clean energy source. Unlike solar power, its land footprint is small. You don't have to have acres upon acres upon acres of a solar farm. A typical 1,000 megawatt nuclear facility in the United States needs a little more than one square mile to operate. Wind farms require 360 times more land area to produce the same amount of electricity, and solar plants require 75 times more space. According to energy.gov. All of the used nuclear fuel, I was saying how people, that's their main concern with nuclear power is what are we going to do with the used fuel? All of the used nuclear, NEI.org did a, did a study on this and found that all of the used nuclear fuel produced by the U.S. nuclear energy energy over the last 60 years could fit on a football field at a depth of less than 10 yards. All that to say this nuclear power is a viable clean energy alternative so let me uh let's see there has a handy dandy little thing non-renewable oil petroleum gasoline diesel hydrocarbon gas natural gas coal nuclear power considered non-renewable Oftentimes, because they're considered non-renewable, they get a bad rap. But just because a source is what we call non-renewable does not mean that it isn't a good source of energy. Coal is an excellent source of energy. It is the cheapest for source of energy, far cheaper than nuclear, natural gas, and oil. Hydro uh, will be a little bit cheaper, but mm, there's no new facilities because we'd have to dam rivers, and the public generally doesn't like that. 
but coal provides a stable source of energy. There is a huge supply of coal, both in the U.S. and other uh, foreign countries, similar to the uranium issue with the with nuclear. Uh, and coal is not some scary uh, thing that's out to get us. No, coal is just wood. Coal is wood that has been under pressure for a long, 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 long time. It's not sinister. It's not evil. It's not out to get us. It's just really, really old wood. Okay? It's not and unlike many other forms of energy, coal provides so many jobs. You have to remove it from the earth. You have to transport it to the utility. You have to burn it. Then you have to dispose of the ashes. It's American-made. We don't have to import it at all. It can be mined and burned with very little environmental impact, despite what everyone says. And coal, because of this, provides 56% of the electricity used in our country every single day. In the state of Kentucky, coal provides 95% of their electricity, and electrical rates in Kentucky are the second lowest in the nation because of coal. So the next time you hear a politician say that coal is evil or that we need to get rid of coal power, think to yourself, okay, well, coal provides 56% of the electricity used across the nation. What is going to replace that? What is going to replace 56% of the country's electricity? And by the way, the global reserves for coal are estimated to be at about 1 trillion tons. That means that we could consume coal at our current level for another 200 years and still have coal left over. And that's without, that's just using the reserves. That's mining nothing new. That's adding nothing to the reserves. Just the reserves that we have worldwide. 200 years of coal available to us. I somehow feel that maybe that's also not a terrible option. Correct. Then we have natural gas. Natural gas sometimes gets a bad name again from politicians because of that <gasps> fracking. What is fracking? It must be hurting our, our planet. No, it's, it's not. Natural gas runs from underground pu pipelines. There's no disruption of supply when there's storms, when there's power outages. Unlike other heat sources that have ashes and odors, natural gas doesn't leave a mess. Um... It's, it, it can do more than just heat. It can be used for uh, than heating homes. It can be used for cooking. It can be used for fireplaces. It can be used for your, your water heaters, for your clothes dryers. And it saves a ridiculous amount of money. So if you have a clothes dryer uh, and you run it for, uh, say, 200 hours in the year, the natural gas cost of powering your clothes dryer, $26. If you've done the same thing with electricity, $136. You saved $110. That is an incredible amount of savings. Natural gas appliances generally use about half the energy of their electric counterparts. And I have found this out because I just moved from a house that had uh, natural natural gas uh, appliances. So my um, 
my washer, my dryer, my water heater. I forget what else, but I had quite a few things that were running on natural gas. Oh, my, my oven, my stove were running on natural gas. Now everything in my new house is all running on electricity. And I thought the electric bill was bad in Las Vegas before. It is even worse now. So if you have natural gas, be grateful. It's also one of the safest sources of energy in the world. And is considered by many to be the best energy alternative for today. Why? Because it is an important tool in decreasing U.S. emissions. Instead of converting it to electricity first, natural gas, you just use natural gas. And, it, and because you just use it and doesn't have to convert it to anything else, it has a 92% efficiency rating. It is the cleanest alternative transportation fuel available in the world compared to diesel and, and gasoline. Natural gas reduces greenhouse gas emissions by 20 to 30%. And we have a lot of it, especially here in the U.S. According to our energy department, the United States leads the world in petroleum and natural gas production. U.S. petroleum and natural gas production increased by 16% and by 12% respectively in 2018. And these totals combined established a new production record. The United States surpassed Russia in 2011 to become the world's largest producer of natural gas and surpassed Saudi Arabia in 2018 to become the world's largest producer of petroleum. In 2018, the U.S. Uh, created a record-breaking 11, okay, record 11 million barrels of crude oil per day, and that is because of fracking. The growth was driven primarily by production in western Texas and eastern New Mexico. Meanwhile, well, do I have time? Do I want to talk about it anymore? I don't know if I want to keep talking about it. I kind of want to stop talking about this. But I was thinking about this because of the debates, because of all the climate crisis, because of the energy. You know, we we hear all these things, you know, we have to have renewable energy, we have to have renewable energy, but nobody talks about the fact that coal is the most used uh, energy source, that while it may not be quote-unquote renewable, we are still mining it today. We have presumably uh, can continue to mine it for hundreds of years, and besides what we can mine for hundreds of years, we know that we have at least a 200-year reserve at current levels of coal consumption. But we're not just utilizing coal. We have all these other options available to us. We know that nuclear power is, uh, is very effective, very clean for the environment, but we're not talking about nuclear power because that just sounds scary. Um, we, we natural gas, you know, that's got to be evil somehow, except that we are the largest producer in the world of petroleum and natural gas. But we don't want to talk about these things, because if we tell people that we are the biggest and the best, then somehow that makes us look bad. What? So we'll just talk about solar power, we'll talk about wind power, 
But we don't talk about the fact that solar power, the land use, the water use, the hazardous materials that are necessary uh, in, in the creation of solar power. Now, look, I, I'm, I'm a fan of solar power, but to say that solar power and wind power, which, by the way, wind power, uh, bird and bat deaths, incredible number of bird and bat deaths at wind farm uh, sites, um, uh, you've got, uh, you've got hydraulic insulating fluids, um, the blade movement, the danger to, uh, to, to planes and to boats, the noise, the visual impacts, um, and then with, like I said, with solar, you've got, uh, hazardous materials being used in the creation of solar panels, you've got chemicals being used, including uh, hydraulic acid, sulfuric acid, nitric acid, hydrogen fluoride, triclothorethane, acetone. Um, the workers working with with these chemicals, inhaling silicone dust. Like it's just, yeah. I I'm I'm a fan of solar. I'm a fan of wind, but I think we give oftentimes all the other sources of energy a bad name. And don't consider their benefits. And then we only look at the benefits of wind and solar and other renewable energy sources without considering uh, the downsides of them as well. The fact of the matter is, we are creating energy. And in order to create energy, we have to harvest or use something. Whether that be the sun, whether it be the wind, whether it be uh, coal, whether it be nuclear power. We are, we are creating energy in some way. And so to create energy, it requires us to utilize different components, whether those be material, whether they be environmental, we are capturing something and then using that to create energy. So every energy source is going to have its positives and every energy source is going to have its negatives. We will never have, in my opinion, an energy source that is uh, that is 100% clean, that everyone likes, and that will never have any issues or downside. It simply will not happen. Unless we just, you know, go back to the Amish way of life, which is much simpler. But we could all get rid of our electricity. We could get rid of our indoor plumbing. But I think most of us would prefer not to do that. And so in order not to do that, we need to have a better understanding of where our, where our electricity comes from, how we generate it, and the fact that whether renewable or non-renewable, every source of energy has its pros and has its cons. And that none of them are necessarily more evil than any other. Okay. Hopefully that was beneficial to someone somewhere. I felt like it was kind of boring. Sometimes I feel like that's the reason why when we have debates and things in the presidential candidates talk, why they make it sound so grandiose. Because to, to talk about the actual facts of it can be, can be kind of boring. But we need to know the facts or we can just be little uh, uneducated sheep that follow along and say, oh yes, give me a thousand dollars every month and I don't know where it's going to come from, but it doesn't matter. Bah. Okay. Break time again. When we return, one last thing, and then I will let you go. This is KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. We the people. 
of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That is, of course, the preamble to the U.S. Constitution, which was signed earlier this week in 1787 on September 17th. The Constitution of the United States of America was signed by 38 of 41 delegates present at the conclusion of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. This week, all this week, we as a country, you may not have known, but we have been celebrating Constitution Week. Constitution Week is celebrated annually during the week of September 17th through the 23rd, which obviously we are in right now. Uh, the celebration of the Constitution was first started by the Daughters of the American Revolution. The Daughters of the American Revolution is a group of uh, women that uh, can directly trace their lineage back to some of our, or a founding father. It's really a really fascinating, really cool group. But in 1955, the Daughters of the American Revolution petitioned Congress to set aside September 17th through 23rd annually to be dedicated for the observance of Constitution Week. The resolution was adopted by the U.S. Congress and signed into public law in 1956 by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Now, the Articles of Confederation had been ratified several months before the British surrender at Yorktown in 1781. The Articles of Confederation were our first governing document as a country. So we had the Declaration of Independence, then we had the Articles of Confederation, uh, and, and it was essentially what it sounds like. It was the, the, the governing articles uh, for the Confederation of U.S. States. So on paper, uh, by the articles, the central authority of Congress had the power to govern foreign affairs, conduct war, and regulate currency. But those powers were very limited because Congress did not have authority to enforce its requests to the states uh, for money or for troops. So the, they were really very bound, uh, even with the Articles of Confederation, in, in their power. So by 1786, according to History.com, it was apparent that the Union would soon break up if the Articles of Confederation were not amended or replaced. So five states met in Maryland to discuss the issue, and all the states were invited to send delegates to a constitutional convention to be held in Philadelphia. On May 25, 1787, delegates representing every state except for Rhode Island convened at Philadelphia's Pennsylvania State House for the Constitutional Convention. The building, which is now known as Independence Hall, had earlier seen the drafting of the Declaration of Independence and the signing of the Articles of Confederation. The Assembly immediately discarded the idea of amending the Articles of Confederation and set about drawing up a new scheme of government. Revolutionary War hero George Washington, a delegate from Virginia, was elected convention president. Yes, he was president of the Congress before he was president of the country. During an intensive debate, the delegates devised a brilliant federal organization characterized by an intricate system of checks and balances. Uh, I don't have time today, but you should go and research how the founders uh, based much of our founding system on the Roman uh, Empire. But that's another fascinating story for another time. The convention was divided over the issue of state representation in Congress as more populated states sought proportional legislation and smaller states wanted equal representation. The problem was resolved by the Connecticut Compromise, which proposed uh, a legislature with proportional representation in the lower house, or the House of Representatives, and equal representation of the states in the upper house, or the Senate. On September 17, 1787, the Constitution was signed. As dictated by Article 7, the document would not become binding until it was ratified by nine of the 13 states. Beginning on December 7th, five states, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Georgia, and Connecticut, ratified it in quick succession. 
However, other states, especially Massachusetts, opposed the document as it failed to reserve undelegated powers to the states and lacked constitutional protection of basic political rights such as freedom of speech, religion, and the press. So, in February 1788, a compromise was reached under which Massachusetts and other states would agree to ratify the document with the assurance that amendments would be immediately proposed. The Constitution was thus narrowly ratified in Massachusetts, followed by Maryland and South Carolina. On June 27, 1788, New Hampshire became the ninth state to ratify the document, and it was subsequently agreed that government under the U.S. Constitution would begin on March 4, 1789. In June, Virginia ratified the Constitution, followed by New York in July. On September 25, 1789, the first Congress of the United States adopted 12 amendments to the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and sent them to the states for ratification. Ten of these amendments were ratified in 1791. In November 1789, North Carolina became the 12th state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. Here's a fun fact for you. So originally, um, there were 12 uh, amendments added by the Congress that were sent to the states, and the states only ratified 10 of them. So that's why we have 10 amendments in the Bill of Rights. The two that the states rejected uh, were that, one, that Congress would not be allowed to give itself a pay raise without constituents being able to register their disapproval. So this, the states uh, turned that one down. I don't know why. But what was fascinating about that one is that no time limit was set on the ratification. So in 1992, the state of Michigan ratified the 27th Amendment, and then the 27th Amendment, uh, which would have been the 11th Amendment, uh, originally proposed, was added to the Constitution literally hundreds of years later uh, based on what James Madison had originally proposed. Uh, then, the only amendment of the original 12 that was, hasn't been ratified is one which would have required each congressional district not to exceed a population of 50,000 citizens. Well, as you probably are aware, the United States has a population of about 320 million people. If this amendment had been ratified, the House of Representatives currently would have more than 6,400 members today. So that's just a, that's just a fun side fact for you. Um, Rhode Island opposed federal control of currency and was critical of compromise on the issue of slavery and resisted ratifying the Constitution until the U.S. government threatened to sever commercial relations with the state. So Rhode Island was potentially not going to be part of this whole thing. But on May 29, 1790, Rhode Island voted by two votes to ratify the document, and the last of the original 13 colonies joined the United States. Today, the U.S. Constitution is the oldest written constitution in operation in the world, and we celebrate God's goodness to our country, God's work through our founding fathers in establishing our great nation based upon our constitution, which is run or our country, rather, which is run by we, the people. So now you know the rest of the story. Thanks so much for being with us this Thursday. Tomorrow is Friday, which means we'll be talking about everything except politics, unless something major comes up that we need to discuss. And I will be giving away something on the air. I think it will be something audio-related. I think I'm giving away some kids' programming on CD. You do not want to miss it. This is KVXO, 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church, where our Sunday morning services are at 9.30 and 11.15. Our evening service on Sunday is at 6 p.m. and our Wednesday night service is at 7 o'clock. We'd love to have you here with us for any of those service times. If you can't be here in person, you can always stream us online by visiting our website at experienceliberty.com or check us out on Facebook at Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas. See you tomorrow.